This episode of Designed by Architectural Record is sponsored by Vitro Architectural Glass, continually advancing how buildings look and perform. According to recent studies, Vitro Glass, formerly PPG Glass, is one of the industry's most respected glass manufacturers and responsible for many of the industry's most specified products, including high-performance solar band solar control, low-E glasses, and Starfire Ultra Clear Glass. Explore products and request curated sample kits at vitroglazing.com. One more time, that's vitro, V-I-T-R-O, glazing.com. When I was with Zaha, this was really, um, uh, it was an awakening for me. And it was, it was something that I realized that this was an architecture that I could embrace. And it was a way of looking at architecture that I could really you know, understand and accept and, and, and dive into. And I did. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Designed, an architecture podcast. We appreciate you listening. And once you're finished, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast, rate us, and leave a comment. Enjoy the show and have a wonderful day. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Designed with me, your host, Aaron Prinz. As always, I just want to say thank you to everyone out there for listening to the podcast, rating the podcast, sharing it with your friends. Uh, it really just means so much. And uh, really, if you want to help help us out, really get the word out to more people, the easiest thing you can do is just go onto the iTunes review section, rate the podcast, leave a comment, let us know what you think. And it really, that's the easiest way for us to get this out to more people. So thanks a lot, everybody. I really appreciate you. Be sure to check out our website, designpodcast.com. There you can stream the podcast right from uh, right from the website. It has links to all of our social media pages, like, for example, our Instagram page at designed.podcast. So go check it out. This week's episode, we have Philip Michael Wolfson, who he's a designer, and he was one of the first people to work with Zaha Adid. And so it's a really great episode. We go into the whole history of his involvement with, with that firm and now how he's moving on to this pioneering this realm of functional sculpture. So it's a really great episode and he has so much advice and really a unique perspective on architecture because he's lived in both this architecture and art world and how they meet and merge. And it's just, it's just a really great conversation. So I think you're really going to enjoy it and I'm happy to bring it to you. So sit back, relax, enjoy. Here we go with Philip Michael Wolfson started by talking about this sort of functional sculpture as you call it and you do a lot of furniture design and I think it's it's kind of interesting because you're designing something that is so well known to everybody and everyone has sort of a preconceived notion of what does a table look like what does a chair look like but you're really taking it and making it sort of this abstract art piece so could you take our audience through really this sort of design process when you're really designing something that is it's, it's been done so many different ways. And how do you go about making something that is both one, functional, and two, unique in its own right? Well, I, I don't start with one functional. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the, I mean, they're one conceptual, two functional. For me, that's why I call them functional sculptures, because the idea is not to reinvent the chair or the table. It's, it's to create a conceptual sculpture that has a functional aspect to it. And that really came about, you know, when I was working with Zaha, this, that first decade, the only works, we didn't get any buildings done. We completed some furniture for an interior for a private commission, uh, a restaurant in Sapporo, Japan, which no longer exists some plate designs for Swid Powell, which was a New York-based company that commissioned architects all over the world 
to make um, plates and teapots and things like that. So when, when Zaha and I were working on the furniture, again, the ideas came from movement and dynamics. So that's a, a conceptual approach. We're not starting with how to make the perfect sofa or how to make the perfect coffee table, because that's such a personal thing. You know, everyone has their own idea of what a table needs to do. Some people want to put their feet on it. Uh, others want to put a vase on it. And, you know, it's, it's completely personal. Uh, a chair, I mean, I have a little slogan or logo, never made it into a t-shirt yet, but it's that comfort is in the butt of the beholder. So, you know, who's to say a chair is comfortable? Everyone has got their own idea of what's comfortable. So for me, when I started my own practice, I, I intended to go on a smaller scale. I intended to start with uh, interiors, functional sculpture, furniture, and uh, sculptures. The uh, functional sculpture, uh, it was interesting because this was in the, um, you know, the 90s. And the whole idea of design art hadn't really started. There was one gallery in New York that was showing furniture designed by artists. I approached them and they didn't want anything to do with an architect. They, they said, nope, you're not an artist, you know, goodbye, thank you. You know, galleries that were dealing with architects, there were not even a handful. I mean, Max Protech in New York was the first. Uh, there was a gallery in, uh, in Amsterdam, I think, that was uh, showing things. There was the one in um, Berlin. You know, it was, it was a new field, and it really was up to um, Philip's auction house, Philip's de Paris at the time. They were the first to kind of label it design art. I actually never agreed with that label. I thought it, was a, it wasn't design, it wasn't art, because design is also a very broad word, you know, as is art. I think the other problem with the market at the time in the 90s, it was exploding, you know, and... and Everyone was after a quick buck. So for the auction house to start promoting these designed pieces of furniture, sort of never really let the conversation and the, you know, the dialogue happen. If you, if you know anything about the history of photography, I mean, photography as an art form was never accepted up until the 70s and 80s. 80s when it started to be taken seriously as an art firm there were photographers going way back who were approaching it as a as an art form but it wasn't considered that then and i think that happened with furniture you know it it wasn't it, it didn't know where to place itself so that was a that was a problem finding the right venues so for me i was able to work with some of the design galleries that were opening Art galleries were not interested in anything that was functional because that wasn't what art was about. It, it was really interesting. I mean, it, but for me, it was it was it was just a continuation of the of the work at Zaha. We worked because we loved what we were doing, and um, hoped to find the right venues for it or people that would appreciate it. Well, we're going to get into because I know there's there's a story, and I apologize if you've told this story of Zaha a thousand times, but. I'm going to have you tell it again in a little bit. But before we get to that part, uh, real quickly, can you take our audience through just where you grew up, kind of what your parents did, the economics of the household, and out of all the things you could have done in life, why the heck architecture? 
Yeah, I was brought up, I mean, I'm American. I was brought up in the States. The family's from New Orleans and Miami. And um, I was raised, my father was a, an engineer and then he went into sort of the space industries. So we were moving around a lot. I was basically raised in Philadelphia and Washington DC and Los Angeles. Um, so moved around a lot, that became kind of normal you know, normal American household, <laughs> nothing very different there. But I think, um, you know, my interests were always in art and architecture and um, automobiles. When I was young, I was really interested in, in the early history of, of the automobiles. And I would collect old, you know, old magazines for the car ads. And, and then I remember when I was still quite young, uh, the Queen Mary, which was one of the big ocean liners, uh, was end, ended her career in Long Beach, California, where they had a sale of all the the interior objects. And I persuaded my father to take me down there. We lived in Los Angeles at the time, and I remember buying a you know a dinner service and a and an ashtray or a garbage can or something like that. You know, which is all I could afford at, at age eleven, I think. So you know, there was always that interest in in design. I mean, this was sort of nineteen thirties deco style. And, um, you know, I, I went to flea markets when I was young. I think I started collecting uh, mid-century designs from a, you know, college student age. But architecture was always a passion. You know, from when I was young, I was always interested in, in the houses. Now, I have to admit that growing up in suburban America, the influences that I had were very, you know, colonial style. In, in Maryland, where we lived outside of Washington, D.C., you had your mock Tudor, your mock colonial, uh, you know, your, your mock Cape Cod. And I became proficient, you know, in my early teens at designing these houses quite a lot better than I think a lot of the developments that were being done. And that probably is what got me into architecture school. Um, I applied to a number of universities and then was accepted at Cornell, which was very engineering oriented at the time, uh, probably still is. So I, I started my education at, uh, you know, in a five-year architecture program at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. And having been brought up in mainly Los Angeles and Washington, D.C., you know, with family in New Orleans and Miami, all of a sudden finding myself in a small town uh, was kind of shocking. You know, there was not the exposure to the arts, which I'd kind of just accepted. I think it's always uh, really interesting that these these big architecture schools are always like, you know, in a town where there's no architecture, capital A architecture. So you're just kind of studying something and just assuming, that you know, without actually experiencing it in real life. It just seems really ironic to me. Well, you, I guess the idea is that you're stuck out there and you don't have anything else to do except study <laughs> and work. <laughs> I guess is, that's one strategy for it, right? Certainly what happened, but uh, yeah. So, I mean, I was always planning to go to the Architectural Association because at the time Cornell and the AA had a strong link because the chairman of the AA, Alvin Boyarsky, had gone to Cornell. So there was this link and I would have been able to go there for a year to London, and that would have been accepted by Cornell. As it happens, you know, when I went to London, I realized after a matter of hours, I think that, okay, this is not, <laughs> this is not gonna be a one-year thing. Um, uh, this well, is the AA, what I, want. I, I visited, we did a studio in London, and then uh, we went to the AA, and I was really surprised just that it's not what you'd expect from an architecture school, I guess, in terms of it's pretty much in like a row house, right? And the rooms are small and it's kind of this maze of an architecture building. 
So I'd imagine like learning architecture in there, it's not typically what you would see if you go to like the USC or University of Texas at Austin or one of these schools where you have the shrine of architecture and the studio is this thing. The AA is kind of its own little beast in a way. Quirky, so quirky yeah. case of, it's a, the of, most a, of an insane non, asylum. <laughs> I couldn't imagine carrying my model down like the little three feet wide stair maze as you go through. So what was that experience like trying to- Well, you know, that you, you said it. That's exactly what it was like. It was, I mean, who had ever expected, you know, a, an architecture school to be set in three 18th century, you know, townhouses in the middle of London? the system, the way it still operates today is that you choose your unit master, your tutor uh, each year and, and follow um, the, the, the ideas promoted by that uh, tutor. And, and that's, that's all you have. You know, there are lectures, but they're not mandatory. Uh, you, you've got a, a structure to submit once every couple of years <laughs> and a, a history thesis at the end of your whole five. I mean, it was, it was absurd. I'd come from Cornell where it was, you know, what you expect from a university. You've got math, English, history, sciences, the arts, all of these classes to attend and you have to attend classes. It's what you kind of are led to believe most colleges and universities are gonna do. So this was a real, a great slap in the face. You know, it was really what I wanted. Also, I think I realized, you know, that, that the type of architecture that was being taught at Cornell was very engineering oriented. It was, a, you know, your, your direct modernist glass steel framed structures. I realized that that wasn't really doing anything for me. So to arrive at the Architectural Association and be uh, immersed into this uh, surrounding that was completely different and, and opening up all sorts of you know ideas and possibilities uh that that was really really very exciting well take us through that moment and i apologize again if you've told this story a yeah. thousand times but meeting zaha adid in the early 80s what was that experience like and from my understanding of the story is that you were kind of her number one in in line and you, she really took you under her wing at the aa so out of all the students at the Architecture Association, it's one of the top schools in the world for architecture, what were you doing that kind of made you stand out and made her kind of take notice of the work you were doing? I don't think that's quite correct. I, I wasn't number one at the AA with her. At the time, this was the late 70s and early 80s, uh, the AA was a real hotbed of, of what was to become, you know, some of the leading architects in the world today. and the age group was very young. You know, Zaha had only just graduated. Um, as it, I only found this out at the Princeton uh, conference, which was held a year after her death, that the year that I studied with Zaha, which was my fourth year, was, was actually the first year she was teaching. She had been teaching with Rem and Elia, Rem Coolhouse and Elia Zangales, but uh, you know, the year I was with her was her first year. There were, I think, 10 or 15 students in each of the units. So it was sort of your family. And uh, you, know, you went on a unit trip together. I think we all went to Berlin that year. And, and it really became a very immersive uh, situation. You know, she, you, you'd, you'd sit around a table, you'd unroll the drawings you'd been working on, you'd go through the project ideas and how you were gonna you know, achieve what you wanted to achieve. I was familiar with uh, Zaha's work because she had already been published with Rem and Elia, their projects for you know, in, in the late 70s. 
that work had been published. So it was really an inspiration, as was, you know, some of the work, a lot of the work being done by the Italians at that time. Uh, Studio Alchemia, Memphis, uh, those groups were all doing some really exciting things. It was very painterly, very, you know, sort of non-architectural. A lot of very non-architectural architecture were being produced then. So, you know, when I was with Zaha, this was really, um, uh, it was an awakening for me. And it was, it was something that I realized that this was the, this was an architecture that I could embrace. And it was a way of looking at architecture that I could really, you know, understand and accept and, 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 and dive into. And, and I did. And I remember uh, uh, there was one unit project, uh, a review, you know, of a project where Alvin, who was the chairman of the A, Alvin Boyarski, was actually in there. And he, I mean, I'm sure any, every architecture student knows what it's like to be in a review of your project. And you're sort of trembling in fear. And um, he actually really complimented my project. So I was sort of in awe. And at the end, he sort of said something, I don't exactly remember, but it was something to the effect that, you know, I think you should stay with Zaha. <laughs> and I don't know. Well, I didn't because um, I, my final year, I went back to a tutor who I'd had the year before just because I wanted to graduate. And, and I really um, knew what this tutor was expecting, what I needed to pull out of a project to, to get to the graduation. Whereas with Zaha, it was, you know, you were never 100% sure if what you were fishing with was going to be a final product or not. But what was interesting was that during that fifth year, I had a, a session, a, a, sort of, a, I asked Zaha, because we, we'd become friends that, at that point, and I asked her to have a look at the, where my project was going. And we had this really, really intense um, argument about the project. And I'd never before or since had such an involved architectural conversation with Zaha. But I think it was eye-opening for both of us because it was at the end of my fifth year that she sort of uh, turned to me and said, you know, I think you should come work with me. And, uh, and, and I said, I think I'd like that very much. And um, so I did. And well, I think was... it's, a, it's an interesting sort of thing. And I think it's kind of plays into the conversation and coming full circle in a way, because we started by talking about, you know, you're designing something that's so well known for everybody. But the deconstructivism at the time, I mean, you're kind of creating a new architecture in a way, so you're designing something that hasn't been designed before, right? So can you take our audience through those those early days of Zaha Hadid architects? And I think it's that she has such like a, a myth, like a legendary sort of aura about her, if you make sense, if that makes sense. So what were those early days like? I mean, we know she didn't have her first built work for a number of years. So over a decade. Yeah. So, I mean, what do you guys actually do? Are you guys sitting around playing ping pong? I know you did a lot of paintings. I mean, what was the office like? What was that? What was the experience but, like for you? Yeah, the office was her muse flat. And, and if anyone knows what a muse is in, in London, a muse house, uh, they're very small. They were the stables behind the main houses. And hers was probably one of the smallest muse houses you can ever imagine. It was basically a kitchen the size of most people's closet on the right and on the left was the, the living room which was the size of most people's bathroom uh, you had a staircase that went up to the same above a bathroom a dressing room and a bedroom that was it 
So a drafting table hardly fit into the living room with a chair and everything else. I mean, it was tight. And that, and that summer, well, that was, you know, Zaha's office had been going for a year and the people that were in it, she had two people working for her. They both left. So that summer when I started, it was myself um, and Alistair standing working on the beginnings of the peak competition, uh, which was, which was um, happening then. So it was, it was for a year we were really working in the house and, and that was tight. And that was an extension of what we'd done at the Architectural Association. You know, you, you work long hours, you're working well into the night, you're pulling all-nighters. You know, we were doing competitions, we were doing uh, all sorts of things. But, you know, we, the winning of the peak happened within six months. So that really did change everything. So we were doing that in 82, the end of 82. 83 is when the chairman of the Architectural Association invited Zaha to have an exhibition. And that's where we were given the whole top floor of the back of the AA to use as a studio. So Zaha was able to bring in people. Uh, we were really able to work on a series of, of large paintings and drawings. From then on, you know, she was able to get the offices uh, in Clarkenwell, where she is today. How do you feel about, because I know that they do this still, or they did with their Vienna studio, where it's kind of, they take students and they kind of just use their work to kind of propel their own studio, if that makes sense. Like, I, I kind of have mixed feelings about it. Like, you're almost using students as free labor in a way. And I know a lot of them go on to get jobs after after that with these firms. But just as like a, a business model in architecture, I think there's this discussion now a lot about, you know, paying interns, interns having to bring their own computers, work seven days a week for 14 hours a day. Where does that kind of stand with you? I mean, going through this whole experience and looking where architecture has come, I mean, there's sort of this mentality with architecture that you, you do it for the love of architecture. You know, it's the arts don't get the funding that, um, that some of the other industries do. We, we were working for nothing because there was nothing coming in. You know, the, 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 there was a, a decade where there was minimum pay because there was minimum income. The projects that we did do that first decade were invited competitions, uh, were proposals from developers, but for one reason or another, it never went through. So the office finances were tight. You know, it was tight. You know, Zaha treated herself to treats when she, when she could and wanted to. Fair enough. You know, it's her practice. You did it because you were involved in it. You were a part of it. So, you know, what you mentioned that you're being used, I don't think we were being used. Everyone that was involved, almost everyone that was involved, got a lot out of it. You know, you really, you, you, it was an experience and, and you, you were developing yourself. Yeah. Get into that decision to leave, like you've been building for these, you know, you talked about she didn't have a built work for over a decade and you've been building and building and building and then you leave right before that. So what was that process like for you and starting your own firm, that transition? I mean, that's not an easy thing to do. So can you just take our audience through what that time was like for yourself? Well, I never really wanted to leave. It was a matter of letting the firm grow up and um, getting what I needed out of it. You know, the, the, the more involved you were with Zaha, the more you expected to be there 
And, you know, I had a partner and, and, and he was living in Switzerland. So, you know, I would need to go away for a weekend once in a while. <laughs> and um, that caused a lot of stress, you know, because you can't just sort of say, oh, well, no, we need to work all night and night. And I'd say, sorry, Zaha, I've got a flight to catch. Uh, I'm out of here. So there would be a lot of arguments about that. And, and it wasn't easy because I was involved, you know, I was the, the lead person in the studio. And, and, and that alone was, was, you know, incredible, you know, to go from being a student pretty much directly into being the senior person at the office. Okay, at the beginning, I was the office <laughs> with Alistair, but as it grew, I was still the, the, you know, the senior designer, the lead designer. And I didn't, I know I, I enjoyed that. I mean, I, you know, reveled in it. There's nothing better than, you know, having what you're doing lead the way. I mean, that's, that's stimulating and it's exciting and it's rewarding. But it just came to the, you know, after eight, nine years, I, I needed to set out on my own. Now, I didn't leave completely. Literally through the 90s, I was still in and out of Zaha's office. I had started my own practice in 91 for interiors and for functional sculpture and art. But I came back, uh, you know, to work on, on whenever I was needed. I worked on the CAC, Cincinnati Museum, uh, a number of projects. And it was really in the early 2000s that I, uh, you know, that I stepped out completely. Do you still see your uh, influence in their work today? Uh, no, I think that's, um, I think there were, you know, distinct changes with, with, with my involvement and then where Patrick took it with the, um, you know, sort of computer-led uh, design, which I think is, you know, stunning, but I think there's, there's a distinct uh, difference. I think it's important for me to be involved in promoting the legacy of those early years, which is what I'm doing and which is what, you know, the foundation wants to be done once that's set up and, and working. And it's really quite exciting because when I give talks on my work, you know, and the influences of which, of course, Zaha is very important. The excitement that's, that's generated, you know, from these students that come up afterwards and say, oh, it must have been thrilling and how amazing, you know, she's such a role model that it's, uh, it's, it's an impressive thing to see. That moment when she passed in Miami, can you take us through, for you, what was that experience like? Yeah, well, I was actually in Miami. Zaha and I had, had some arguments from the mid-2000s when I really stopped working with the office. I mean, so we were really, you know, seeing each other occasionally at events. Uh, she'd invite me to the openings and things like that. But we were just becoming, you know, friends again and, and starting to see each other again when she, when she passed. She was very sad. I actually take the responsibility for introducing her to Miami because it's through my family there uh, that uh, she started visiting. A cousin of mine has the museum there, the Wolfsonian, and um, he and Zaha became quite close. And I think it was through him that he introduced her to a lot of important people in Miami. And she loved Miami. And then, you know, she would stay at the Raleigh Hotel and when it was the sort of the only hotel you could stay in in Miami. And she'd stay in the Ethel, uh, what was it, Ethel Waters, Esther, the famous swimmer from the 1930s. There was a suite named after her and Zaha would stay in that room and it would always leak whenever there was rain. It was quite funny. But Zaha would hold court out by the pool. and Yeah, no, it was really great. She loved Miami. 
So as it happened, when she passed, I, I had just arrived in Miami. Um, they held a service at the residential towers, the Museum Tower, I think it's called, uh, which was just starting construction in Miami. And they, um, they organized it to be held at the same hour of the service that was happening at the mosque uh, in London. And they had, um, there was a, it was outside, you know, as, as it happened, the, the clouds, it started raining and it seemed it rained in London at the same time. It was really quite, a, quite eerie. Um, but no, it was, a, it was a shock. It was a real shock. No one, no one really expected it. You don't ever expect someone who, you know, you have such links to, to, to die. You move on to starting your own firm. And I always find this as an interesting time period because, I mean, I'm assuming that you had a little bit of an edge. You're very well connected. You've been with this large, well-known organization. Or maybe not large at the time, but like a very well-known organization with connections. But you move on to starting your own firm. I feel like you could continue to do that sort of work, but instead of doing that, you really, really scale it down to the micro level of furniture. So those early days of the firm, I think it's always interesting. Was there a time when, you know, the phone wasn't ringing and you're thinking like, man, maybe I should give Zaha a call and really just go back to that? Like, how, how, what was that sort of transition like? Well, I, as I said, I was, I was still in and out of the office. You know, I needed to set up on my own to, to just to, to be able to have a certain independence. You know, uh, you know, we did speak, of course, you know, and, and when there was the project, I, I came back to work on it. You know, we were going to set up a company together. Uh, this was being discussed in the early 2000s. And, and when that didn't happen, that's why I, you know, when I left completely. But that was for me. Uh, what was the what was the company? It was going to be focusing on the interiors and 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 um, products. Which I think that's interesting because I visited while we were in London. We went by the Zaha store or whatever it may be where they have the gallery. All of these, yeah, 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 the gallery where they have all these products. And I think it's it's interesting that you you know you all parted ways was that twenty years ago, but there to me is a, a link between that sort of furniture and the furniture you're producing as well. Do you agree with that or? Yes, because there's a similar, you know, we're, we're starting from the same ideas. Uh, I think there's some of the works that are created using um, the computer is, is a little bit different, but um, sure, we're on the same, we're on the same wavelengths. Are you not using any computers when you design? Uh, not to design. I don't use it to design. I always start with a with a pencil sketch, and then the computer is just used to develop it. How do you maintain a certain amount of quality control or accuracy if you're? Because I mean, the computer is so precise. You know what I mean? Versus right, right. But the, we we use the computer for putting it together. I mean, for creating the working drawings and and to a degree uh, permutations of the de of the design and the development of the design. But it doesn't start with the computer. It never starts with the computer. What I, I think that's interesting because I think a lot of students now like they just jump straight to the computer and with like grasshopper and this sort of stuff you can just plug in an algorithm which I kind of think with, with that sort of design it kind of it kind of ruins it for me in a way if that makes sense because I feel like you've taken all of the personality that that hand sketch or maybe just even the idea is and you're letting the limitations of well, the computer skills drive the design. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of people with amazing computer skills, and, and that's fine, and you can create something amazing. 
I, I, I was not involved in the parametric design world or scene. Um, I find it really interesting and exciting, but you know, I, I'm a, you know, sort of a one man band here. Uh, and the, the people that help me now are remote. So I don't think you can create you know, remotely over the design. I mean, when I was working, it, when I've got someone here in the studio, we're taking a design to a computer's level. I can use the computer with them to develop the design. And I think, you know, that's where parametricism can become really exciting when you can input those sort of personal, that personal touch to it. You know, but it goes back where you want to start. I mean, you know, I think the idea of starting with a sketch and then developing through a painting is something that's really beautiful and exciting. And that's how the office began. It wasn't just painting for painting's sake. The paintings were used as a form, uh, as a tool to develop it. In fact, before I started in the office, Zaha had painters. There was Nan Lee, who was working with Zaha on the um, Eaton Place and the Irish Prime Minister's House, which were the two projects Zaha did the first year of her practice, the year before I started. Nan was involved for years and she was the, the lead painter. Her background is, is textile design. But to have painters involved in creating something, you know, it, it, it means, well, what do you create? You know, where does a painting come into it? Where does a sculpture become a painting, become a building? And, and there's also this whole play of scale. You know, that was always something that was really interesting in the office that, you know, you could have a vase that could be a building. And, and that was a sculptural approach. And, and that was really quite an exciting idea and something that for me, when I started my own practice, going back to your question earlier, you know, I, for me, it was the same. I, I, had the, I had some private, you know, clients and friends that wanted projects for their interiors. So I was able to do, which is what I started with my practice was interiors and, and the functional sculpture. But it's the same as a building. If you're creating a, a, a piece of furniture or a table, it can also be the basis for a sculptural project that's a conference center or whatever the program. Program, and uh, which is such an important part of a proposal, has a sculptural element to it, if that makes sense. What's your proudest moment of your career so far? Um, you know, I think there's not one particular moment. I think there's a, any, any artist, sculptor, painter, architect, you, you have a certain pride in seeing something completed that you've done. But even more, for me, it's, it's seeing other people enjoy it. And, and I've been very blessed in, for instance, the interiors that I've done. You know, some of them have been around for you know, over 20 years and they haven't changed. They've been cleaned, but they haven't changed. <laughs> so that's kind of, you know, your, your work is really appreciated. That's, that's, that's always something that's so satisfying. What's the biggest setback you've had in your career and how have you used it to motivate yourself to get to where you are today? Uh, well, you know, you can always learn from a setback. I think any project that doesn't come to fruition is, is in a way a setback. Well, those early years, I have to ask, is... You know, we talked about, you know, over a decade. Is there not a point during that time when you're just like, this is never going to happen? I think the excitement was when something actually was happening. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, how do you not get discouraged in that time when you're like, I'm just painting and drawing and like, I don't know. It's like, I'm trying I to think, think the what there would was be an a good comparison to that. 
well, you know, we'd ha we did have a lot of, of work coming into the office, you know, whether it was paid or not. There was always a, a, an exhibition to set up. There was a magazine to do. There was a, you know, there was a, a design project to work on. So if one didn't happen, there was always the next one that was waiting for us to get into. So, you know, we, we, we couldn't stop to, we didn't have time to, to sort of get depressed about losing something. I think it's a, it's a got such mad a, and Zaha well, got really mad at times, but, <laughs> but um, well, I think what was really interesting uh, was that we would do proposals. Uh, we would present them if they didn't happen. We still had this body of work, these paintings, which the magazines at the time were just dying to publish or they'd be exhibited or go to a gallery. So the work was being appreciated. What was really sort of unusually unnerving was that there were aspects of some of the architecture that we were designing that were quite noticeably, you know, from Zaha's studio, appearing in other architects' projects you know, actually built before we did, sort of random angled, angular series of columns. You know, no one had been doing that. And then all of a sudden, you know, they, they'd seen it in a lot of our designs, which had been published. All of a sudden, we're seeing it in some project in wherever. And we thought, oh, you know, those, those are the same six angled columns we had on the whatever project. And it's all of a sudden, now they're in the front of this shopping mall entrance. And so it was kind and, of uh, interesting to know that you know the the uh, what we were doing was being you know seen so far and why and i think 30 years later it's still being stolen in every architecture student's rendering so i don't think that's changed over time well, you know th there's a certain um, degree of appropriation that that's that's kind of a means to understand it when you're when you're using it and that also that's you know stolen is a hard word because it's it, it shows that they appreciate something in it and, and hopefully they're trying to understand it. I'm a, I'm a judge on a, a, this, uh, it's called the Tamayu's Excellence Awards, which is a Coventry, England-based architecture um, competition that was founded by an Iraqi architect. So their award ceremonies are held in, mainly in, in Jordan. And so I've been to the Middle East through this and, and given my talks there. And it was really interesting that the year, the first year, which was maybe four years ago, all of the entries from Iraq, all of the architecture entries were, were absolute sort of copies of, of what they thought a Zaha building was like. And, and that's changed slowly over the years, but, but it was really, a bit, and, and I asked why, why, you know, why are these students in Iraq all doing these? And, and the answer I was told was that for them, you know, this is this is something to look towards. This is a new, you know, a, a new way. You know, four years ago, if you remember what was going on in Iraq, it was devastating. So for these students, seeing this sort of architecture that could be theirs, it was it was a it was a loving appropriation. Knowing what you know now, going back to young Michael Wolfson at the AA or you know at Cornell, what advice would you have? knowing what you know now? Um, you, have to, you have to do whatever you're passionate about. You know, love what you do, um, expose yourself to as many life experiences as you can, you know, keep open about your possibilities and, and, and go for it, enjoy it. 
and, and don't go just to be the top because that's not necessarily where you're going to be. But getting to wherever you're going is, is what you've got to enjoy. What's next for Wolfson Design? Uh, focusing on painting and sculpture. Um, you know, and, and actually what I see is, is that I'm doing what I can to promote Zaha's legacy. Focusing on my part in it, which was the initial development of her practice, as well as promoting Zaha as a painter and an artist, because I think she's so much more than just an architect. I think just an architect, architecture is very important, but she's more than that. She's an international figure. And I think that needs to be really seen. Uh, she had a commitment to the, the public, to public space, you know, and that's something that today, the people question that about the architecture, but Zaha's initial intent, intent was to really look at how an architecture could be a sculpture for the people and how it could be used by a city. Well, Michael Wolfson, thank you so much. This was a great conversation and uh, thanks a lot, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Enjoy everybody. Thank you for listening to an episode of Designed, an architecture podcast. We'd appreciate you taking a moment to subscribe to us rate us, and leave us a comment. Have a wonderful day.